Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Okay, defense is a big topic, so let's get into it. We've decided to do these podcasts because there's quite a bit of misinformation in the public domain about what's going on in defense, particularly on the acquisition side of things. And this seems like a good way of augmenting what we're already doing in the magazine Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. Now, the reason for misinformation or just not enough good quality information getting out there comes back to some basics, including probably most importantly, the Department of Defence itself is no longer nearly as helpful or communicative as it used to be. And by that, I mean like over a 10-year period. And also what started to creep in is either information not being provided at all on mundane topics or sad as it is to say, sometimes misleading information. Now that's compounded by the fact that at a political level, the opposition were in government until 12 months ago. They have signed off on a large number of decisions and they are now not going to turn around and be critical of themselves. And as well as that, There's a sort of an understanding at a political level that they can sort of snipe away at each other's personalities and for for short-term gains, but there's very little appetite for any sort of structured, detailed criticism either of the department or of the ADF. And uh, I'll return to that a bit later on. We do know that the department and the defence system makes mistakes, and here I'm referring particularly to the acquisition side of things. We've got the occasional ANAO report. They're frequently critical of the way that major projects have been handled. Defence typically responds by either ignoring them or arguing that they're backward-looking and that corrections have already been made. I'm not sure how valid that is, but that's a way of killing off the debate. There are a few think tanks around Australia, pretty high-quality people involved, However, most of them tend to focus more on the strategic policy side of things rather than on acquisitions. And then there's the media, and successive governments seem to have taken the view that if they can starve us of information, that's just an easy way of avoiding any sort of criticism at all. We also know from defence industry that often projects not going particularly well But defence industry is sort of a bit muzzled in that regard. They tend not to speak publicly out of the perception that if they're critical of the department, that will rebound on them. I must say I don't have too many case studies to prove that that's the case, but certainly that's the fear within industry. So there's information that's sloshing around there that it comes to the media, but usually on a background basis. Now, Let's turn to the big story of the moment, which, of course, is the Defence Strategic Review. There are other things as well, like AUKUS, and we'll come to those in due course, but it's the DSR that uh, is dominating debate. The public version came out on April 24th, and a few cynics wondered whether that timing was deliberate so that any coverage of it was overshadowed by ANSEC Day the next day. I must say, Having read the report in some detail, I share that cynical view because 
despite the claims of everyone from the Prime Minister down that this is the most important review since the Second World War, it is anything but. And we know this by just looking at the fundamentals. The way that it was set up, it wasn't allowed to look at AUKUS. It wasn't allowed to look at the Hunter-class frigate program. By the look of it, it also wasn't meant to examine budgetary implications or, or anything along those lines. Now, on top of that, when it came out, it then also excluded any information about the future structure of the Royal Australian Navy surface fleet, saying that's now the subject of a separate review, I think in a cringeworthy way to be done by a retired USN admiral, no matter how nice or how well, well qualified he is, it's impossible for me to believe that we could not have found someone in Australia able to undertake that. Anyway, so the review itself was very limited from the beginning and to have slaved away for many months, basically focusing on the army. Air Force has been given pretty much a leave pass for everything that they want, but that army has been picked on. Let's have a look at, uh, at some of those. There were a couple of big losses, reducing the number of infantry fighting vehicles from a nominal or intended 450 down to 129. That's a massive change. It's reducing the number of tracked armoured infantry fighting vehicles to about one third of what Army had previously argued was necessary for their combined arms operations. Combined arms operations is where you put your tanks, your infantry fighting vehicles, your mobile artillery, close air support, surveillance, all the rest of it, and you work as an integrated team to seize and hold territory. Very intense, very kinetic operations. Now, Army had come up with their numbers of vehicles in various categories, actually based on a fair bit of study. They didn't just you know pull this out of the air. They didn't come up with 450 because it's a nice round number. So what the DSR has done is wreck that balance, but they've gone even further by also cancelling a second batch of self-propelled howitzers but at the same time, going ahead with an increased number of refurbished Abrams main battle tanks from the United States that will have zero Australian content. So putting all of that together, the DSR has taken at least $10 billion worth of future work out of Australian industry, but has gone ahead with $4 billion work, worth of work to the United States. And as I've said in writing, just a little hobby horse of mine, but it's worth doing again, when people talk about new Abrams main battle tanks, they are not new. The production line for the Abrams ceased in 1996, and all that Australia and everyone else has been receiving since then are refurbished Cold War stocks. Admittedly, the turrets have been upgraded. They've had sensors added onto them. The end result is a, you know, it's a, a formidable highly effective main battle tank, but it's nevertheless a 30-year-old piece of machinery. Now, the government, in attempting to justify why they've cut back on the number of infantry fighting vehicles, but have gone ahead with additional orders of main battle tanks, somehow try and argue 
the main battle tanks that you, are nimble and agile. Now, this is where we very rapidly cross over into a very obvious area of misinformation. And I know because I've had this directly from army itself. A main battle tank is actually quite manoeuvrable. They've got very good power to weight ratio. They've got a 1500 horsepower gas turbine engine. They've got wide tracks, so they've got low ground pressure so that they can go across soft terrain. They can go up slopes. Uh, they can push through scrub and trees if it's in their way, all of that sort of stuff. That's all true. But that's only part of the equation. To be fair in this debate, you just have to take into account also the overall weight of these things. And an Abrams M1A2 is about 68 tonnes. Now, that's a massive amount of weight. It means that you're very limited about the bridges that you can cross. You're very limited when it comes to the use of rolling stock, low loaders, railway carriages, all, all of that sort of thing, simply because of the mass of the Abrams. And that's been left out of the debate completely. So people are relying on a few certain facts, but they're leaving out others to create a false impression. These things are not going to add to Army's mobility. Now, if we look at the self-propelled howitzers, that's a long and complex and at times quite nasty story. Australia's had a few problems grappling with the issue of self-propelled howitzers. In the late 2007-2008, Army decided that that rather than getting a wheeled self-propelled howitzer, they wanted to get a tracked self-propelled howitzer because they wanted something that was more heavily armoured for crew protection. All of the, the document deliverables were perfect, but Army delayed and delayed and delayed placing an order for it. Now, on a future occasion, I'll go into the exact reasons why, but it, it was a pretty dirty story where basically Army had one solution in mind and they weren't prepared to consider an alternative. So fast forward to the DSR. Army in uh, 2019 decided that, yes, they did want self-propelled howitzers from South Korea. An order was placed for 30 of these plus 15 armoured in-theatre resupply vehicles. And then it was indicated in the subsequent white paper that there would be a second batch of self-propelled howitzers and resupply vehicles ordered later this decade. The DSR has cancelled that second order and has said as the justification, justification, by the way, which has been repeated, certainly by Defence Industry Minister Pat Conroy, I'm not certain about Defence Minister Richard Miles, that these systems are not mobile enough and are not lethal enough. Well, look, on the mobility side of things, that's just plain wrong. They also have wide tracks. They've got a powerful engine. They weigh 47 tonnes, so they're relatively easy to deploy. Certainly easier to deploy than a main battle tank, which is about 20 tonnes heavier. In terms of lethality, well, you only need to have a look at what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment. And, and OK, a lot of attention has gone, understandably, to systems like HIMARS, which Australia is also getting. But the bulk of the heavy lifting, so to speak, has been done by Ukrainian mobile artillery. 
a lot of it various self-propelled howitzer systems that have come from Poland, from Germany, and from the UK. That's really been central to their efforts because the volume of fire and the sustained rate of fire that you can achieve with a self-propelled howitzer in this day and age is impressive. And rocket-propelled artillery systems certainly have their place. I'm not arguing against that at all. On the contrary, I'm a supporter of, uh, of rocket artillery, but it's only one part of the overall complex formulation. There's also been reference made to the so-called range issue that you get with a 155mm howitzer compared with a rocket system. This is very selective use of information, obviously designed to damage the reputation of self-propelled howitzers, and it's not a rational or factual contribution to the debate. Currently, a self-propelled howitzer 155mm shell will go up to 40 kilometres, but with various techniques, some of which have been around for more than 20 years, base bleed, rocket assist, that sort of stuff, you'll easily get to 60 kilometres and there are plenty of systems out there that are pushing 80. And we know that much more than that is also possible. The 155mm sister on the United States Navy Zumwalt destroyers, there are only two of those in existence, but nevertheless, they both have 155mm gun systems. They're achieving ranges of 150 kilometres. So for anyone to stand up there and say self-propelled howitzers are limited to 40 kilometres are simply twisting the facts to suit a particular outcome. And unfortunately, this is the world that we live in. There are very few mechanisms for trying to explain to people that what they're being told is only a very small part of the picture. The, the other part of it is that take into account cost, a basic rocket for a HIMARS is about half a million dollars. It's got to be manufactured, it's warhead, guidance unit, all, all, all of that sort of stuff. Now, a basic 155 millimeter artillery shell is about 5,000 bucks. It varies a bit, but that, that's a, a good average. So for every basic HIMARS unguided munition that you can buy, you can buy 500 155 mil shells. So when you put it all together, when you talk about the mobility of the system, when you talk about its lethality, self-propelled howitzers, in my opinion, stack up extremely well. And by the way, don't just listen to me. Look at what the rest of the world is doing. Look at the numbers of self-propelled howitzers being purchased by Poland, just put in an order for 648 of the ones identical or near identical to the ones that Australia is getting. The UK is buying them. NATO countries or other NATO countries like Norway, Finland, Estonia are getting the South Korean guns. They're being sold to Egypt. They're being sold to India. Australia is the only nation that is going backwards in terms of self-propelled house capability. Everyone else is just trying to acquire them as quickly as possible. We're almost out of time, so I'm just going to, to use a couple of minutes to touch on a couple of other hot topics, and I'll be expanding on these in the future. First of all, there was an announcement, a notification to Congress that Australia will be buying a US towed array sonar system called CERTAS 
for the equivalent of 307 million Australian dollars. It hasn't been announced in Australia like so many things. We don't find out about it from our government or the department. We find out about it when the United States has to notify their Congress of these sales because they are legally required to do so. And unlike us, they have an open and transparent system. That $307 million should be spent in Australia because we have an extremely good indigenous sonar capability industry and defence scientists going back for at least 40 years. That's big money. It would make a huge difference being spent here. It should not be going to the United States. I'm not aware of any Australian company having been asked for a quote on this. And I just wonder whether people in defence even know what level of capability we've got here. The final comment is about the, the ANAO report into the Hunter Class Frigate Program. And I'll be going into this in a lot more detail in the future because the report, well, my goodness. If you want an indication of just how badly things can go with some projects, this is a good one. As I say, just a very quick overview. The ANAO report has been very critical of the process, including it's come to the extraordinary conclusion that in making the choice, it was a three-way contest, Defence failed to take into account considerations of value for money. I, I'm almost lost for words. The concept of value for money is meant to underpin every purchasing decision made by the Commonwealth government. Not just defence, everyone. Whether it's a pen or whether it's a frigate or whether it's a submarine, value for money is meant to be one of the basic considerations that needs to be examined. Why it wasn't done so in this case, I don't know yet, but I and a few other people are going to have a pretty good go at finding out. This is going to be hampered because the other thing the ANAO has found out is that a whole lot of doc documents are missing, which also seems extraordinary. I mean, defence should be meticulous record keepers, particularly for a $40 billion contract. And to find that vital documents have disappeared seems bizarre. Anyway, please tune in again and uh, a lot more of this coming up in future. Bye. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.